you are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I am Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Tiu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel to name a few. You can expect deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom for trying to change the system from within. I'm coming now. I'm coming to reward them. First, we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. I'm guided by a signal in the heavens. I'm guided by the birthmark on my skin. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. First, we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. You are listening to Leonard Cohen's First We Take Manhattan. In today's episode of ARD Healthcare, I talked with Jakob Nicholas Kather about his recent paper in Nature Medicine on swarm learning in cancer histopathology. Hi everyone, you are listening to from whichever part of the world. Welcome to ARD Healthcare. It is a pleasure today to have Professor Jakob Nicholas Kather here in today's episode. Jakob is a professor at Technical University Dresden, Germany, where he is leading the department of clinical AI at Else Kronner Fresenius Center for Digital Health. So he is a physician by training and he specializes in internal medicine and GI oncology at his normal clinical life. and then he also has a second life of a very productive very capable researcher bringing ai deep learning for immunotherapy biomarker research all these stuffs in the cancer and oncology setting his recent paper in nature medicine titled swarm learning for decentralized artificial intelligence in cancer histopathology has uh, caused a lot of excitement within the community and several people inquired me about the paper as well as when i'm bringing yakob into the podcast for a detailed discussion about the paper so here we go we heard you um so welcome to the podcast yakob well thank you very much anibam i'm glad to be here perfect so we always start with the traditional question of your becoming how was the years where you while growing up and how was your journey to the current researcher professor that you are Well, thank you very much, Anirban. So, what I'm doing right now is combining two different worlds: so the clinical medicine and the technology, programming, computer vision world. And I guess I had a strong interest in both things very early on. And I started like in high school playing around with computers and playing around with HTML and PHP and these things. And then I went into medical school at Heidelberg University in Mannheim. and then at some point um, there was an option to 
do an additional master of science degree in medical physics, which I did where I learned programming, image, um, yeah, data analysis, image analysis. And we did a lot of radiology image analysis. And then suddenly when I had to choose a topic for my master's thesis, I realized that histopathology is actually something pretty interesting. Not so many people were working in that field back then. And I thought that computer vision could be very interesting to address some clinical questions in with histopathology image data. And that's how I found my niche because right now I'm combining both of these things, um, working as a medical doctor and at the same time um, doing research about applied computer vision, in, especially in cancer histopathology for biomarker development in cancer. Yeah, that's wonderful. So I guess I sort of have this epiphany after starting the podcast. This is the fifth season, basically. So one of the common recurrent topic is that the clinicians I get here as our guests, they often are, of course, active researcher in AI. And then somewhere quite early on in their journey, they have been introduced in computer programming, coding, all these stuff in some way or other. That's also true for you. You just mentioned that. So just, I guess, out of curiosity, is it an advantage to have such a multidisciplinary background to start with? Oh, definitely. I definitely think so. And I think that all high school students should have the opportunity to to learn some programming, right? And, and these things are not so hard. So it's actually pretty easy to get started and play around, even if you're a high school student and quickly get something uh, a, a result that you're happy with and more generally of course it always pays off i think to have some diverse interests and play around with different fields and then sometimes it's, it just comes together yeah <laughs> wonderful so yeah that that's really something i guess that's becoming a common theme that the early adapters who will go out and venture into this sort of an interdisciplinary field they are always someone who has a background on these other sides before. So I guess one thing you mentioned, of course, is computer vision, deep learning, and the interest there and how it connects to histopathology. So listening to the vibe of things, it seems pretty clear that even beyond radiology, even within the pathology, within the clinical oncology, there is a growing understanding that deep learning, AI, the technologies that's being developed in our sphere, the Mikai sphere, so to say, and other around it, that would have a big transformative impact on the practices. So especially let's consider clinical oncology, which is your specialty. So can you tell us what are the big promises and where we should be focusing on while developing these technologies? Yeah, so um, the big promises are, um, I think, pretty clear in the clinical community. So the data that we have available is always growing. It started with next generation sequencing, but then also with um, new imaging modalities in radiology and yeah, in general, more diagnostic procedures. So the data that you have available for your clinical decision-making is growing. At the same time, the decision trees become more and more complex. So if you look into the guidelines of lung cancer, for example, you if you if you look at the um, guidelines from 10 years ago, they would it would be like a very small decision tree. And now it's a massive tree with many, many branches. And so I think um, the hope in the clinical community is that um, this problem is that we somehow can use um, 
AI methods in the future to cope with the um, growing amount of data and the growing complexity of things. But that's actually pretty something that's pretty challenging and um, pretty, pretty hard to deliver. So I guess with the growing complexity of the data comes to the actual process of handling and sharing and putting data together, bringing it into a machine-readable framework, all these, right? Because like, despite having a lot of data, it's not necessarily something that is obviously usable for algorithmic development at its current form. I guess that's where your uh, nature medicine paper's journey started with. I mean, if I understand correctly, the big central problem you are trying to solve is the problem of data sharing, where the traditional idea that we put all data together in one central location in a big chunk and we put our uh, AI algorithm, train it and things along. That's not really very realistic. That's not going to happen anytime soon with GDPR and all the other logistics issues. So how can we bring instead of distributed learning, instead of putting all data in one place? So maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. but that, That's totally correct. But maybe before we dive deep into this, maybe we can take a, one step back, um, just a small step, um, because really what what happens in clinical routine is that we are faced with really messy data which with a lot of data missingness and the data is really diverse for every patient and in reality what we have to do is we have to at least in germany we have to chase every single piece of data for many patients who present at the university hospital we have to call um, smaller hospitals referring institutions to send over cds of radiology scans and to send over pathology slides by mail and to send over lab results by fax machine. So actually in, in the clinic daily practice of oncology, this takes a lot of time. And like, even if you had all the data in a standardized format, just for your human decision-making, you would save probably half of the time that we spend with patients right now. So yeah, these are big issues, which are too big to solve for me or just for anyone individually. But that's that's just I think it needs to be clearly stated that um, yeah the the real world of medicine is really messy. We we have very very diverse types of data, and to piece them together is definitely a task which currently in the, with the given structures cannot be automated. And then that's also why some big initiatives that promise to automate all of oncology um, with AI, they have not delivered. For example, IBM Watson, right, which was launched in 2012, they said, yeah, let's just automate any decision making in, in oncology. Let's automate tumor boards. But um, after many, many years of spending a lot of money on that, they didn't really deliver anything. And that's why right now, we and our own research, but also many others focus on very specialized use cases, right? So let's say you have a set of CT images, you want to detect lung cancer, and you want to build a model to do that, right? Or you have pathology slides, and you want to build a model that predicts survival, or you have like a, a set of lab values, and you want to predict whatever treatment response. So these are the very um, much more simplified tasks that we are working on right now, because for in order to address these bigger tasks, we need to solve many, many other problems that are not related to AI at all, but more how we organize the practice of medicine. 
So essentially, we need to make the medicine AI ready per se, right? So that's that's exactly the topic of the uh, entire podcast as well. How to really bring everything together? It's not just the uh, technology. Yeah. So I guess I totally agree, and most of our listeners who has been listening to the podcast long enough has heard this recurrent theme that it's not just about downloading data from some web website and then running your deep learning methods saying okay i'm da 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 accurate that means nothing it's it's a significantly more complicated and nuanced problem that we are solving definitely and in the last couple of years i mean i've worked in several um, clinical departments in oncology and you wouldn't imagine how these workflows are organized like we have for each patient we have one massive Microsoft Word document, which can be 60 pages or so. And every time the patient comes to the outpatient clinic, we would add another paragraph at the end. And then if the patient brings a lab test, we would manually type the results in this Word document. And this is like the state of the art at the top um, clinical institutions in Germany and probably in other countries as well. And then like these these workflows are just, yeah. I mean, if you if you haven't seen that in in how, how the practice of medicine works, then you wouldn't believe that things are sometimes so uh, rudimentary. But still, I, I'm pretty hopeful that in some cases, we do have pretty standardized data and we can use AI to make sense of the complexity in the data. And of course, a very good domain to do that is image analysis or in medical imaging and radiology or in radiation therapy, and, but also in histopathology. And that's where my team is working. Perfect. So yeah, I mean, that sets the stage pretty well, the complexity of the problem. And then we have this uh, nature medicine papers of your paper of yours, which shows that how to at least develop algorithm to solve uh, one particular piece of this problem. So for this particular histopathology problem, would you explain the data sharing problem first? Yeah, definitely. So Basically, one of the topics that my team is working on is to build AI-based biomarkers that can learn from routine histopathology slides and predict clinical outcomes that we're interested in. So every single patient with a solid tumor, which is 95% of all the cancer diseases, right? Every single patient has histopathology data. So that means at some point, someone took a biopsy or took a, did a surgery and took part of the tumor tissue out and that went to a pathology department where it was embedded and cut and then placed on a glass slide. And then someone looked at it under a microscope. And actually, that's what you need to make the diagnosis of a cancer um, in most cases. And these glass slides are just um, yeah, lying around in archives. And what you can see on these glass slides is a lot of details about the tumor. You can actually see all the tumor cells, the immune cells, the stroma in between. So there's a lot of information here, which is currently not being used. And in the last couple of years, we have really seen many studies that have shown that you can train deep learning models in a pretty naive end-to-end way, just train them on the images to predict survival, to predict molecular alterations, to predict um, response to treatment, and you get pretty reasonable results in many cases. And like in all AI methods, the more data you have, the better your result will be. And what we have seen in several studies is that we need at least a couple of hundred um, histopathology slides, and it's better to have a couple of thousands, and then you get a really good performance. 
So um, in practice, of course, it's pretty hard to collect a couple of thousands histopathology slides of patients with the same disease, especially if you want to have clinical data associated with them. And that's where our study came in. We investigated whether swarm learning, which is kind of a variation or an improved version of federated learning, can help us in, in solving these um, data collection and data sharing challenges. Wonderful. I guess that that sets the stage straight about the particular problem you are dealing with. You already mentioned the word swarm learning, which is probably quite for quite a lot of our listeners a new term they are not used to. And of course, you also mentioned federated. So, but I, I guess maybe if you can briefly define uh, this distributed learning setting, the sort of situation and how swarm learning works in a very non-algorithmic way. Sure, definitely. So the problem that we are talking about is data exchange between different institutions. So let's say we have three hospitals and each of them they have a collection of pathology slides, and then um, we want to train a model that predicts survival in colorectal cancer on these slides. So the traditional way would be to collect all the slides or collect all the digital scans in a central location, and then you train a model on all of these images, and then you are ready to deploy it. The thing is that this step of data sharing between the institutions is um, pretty hard in practice. What you need is to First of all, get the trust of all participants that they are willing to collaborate, but then also you need to get the legal requirements and the ethical requirements in place. And then we typically ship scanned slides on an external hard disk. Yeah, that's often the easiest way in practice to, to share the data. And that's, of course, not optimal. So that's where um, distributed machine learning comes in and the um, traditional technique is federated learning. That means you have a central location that's basically an institution who wants to train an AI model based on multiple sets of data. So the set data sets are stored in different locations. And basically each partner has a computer where the data is stored and they run a program that runs the machine learning training at each site um, synchronously. And then um, basically all the participants start at the same time. And then every couple of minutes, um, the um, machine learning model, um, specifically the, yeah, the, the parameters, the weights and biases are sent to the central location. What's being done there is just all the different um, parameters from the different institutions, all the different models, they're basically averaged. And then the average model is sent back to each location and everyone keeps on training. And then this is done iteratively many, many hundreds or thousands of times. And then in the end, what you get is a model that is that can be as good as a model that has been trained on all the data in a central location. And that's pretty neat because you don't have to exchange the data. You only exchange the trained models at different stages of the training process. And that's what federated learning is. And federated learning has a few problems, some of which swarm learning is the solution to. Amazing. You are doing such a wonderful job of explaining algorithm, Jakob. You are just almost like scaring me that I I will lose my job soon because <laughs> you, you, you have done a wonderful, wonderful job of talking about the algorithm difficulty itself. It's, it's a really commendable thing. So I guess one of the 
main thing that you did in your paper is to bring such a distributed learning and in particular swarm learning to solve the problem of distributed histopathology for cancer. So can you give us three major takeaways of the Nature Medicine paper? Yeah, so sorry, I realized I didn't um, explain what swarm learning is about and why is it better than federated learning. So maybe I can I can do that before I get to the three points. So um, the thing is with federated learning, it works well from a technical perspective, but still one aspect of federated learning is sometimes hard to accept for practitioners and that's the problem that you still have a central location. So you have a master institution that collects all of the machine learning models of the other institution and then merges the models and sends them back. So that's more of a psychological thing. All the other partners are somehow degraded to data suppliers and only the institution in the middle is is like the central hub where everything happens and that they can make the rules, right? And without them, nothing works. So that's where swarm learning comes in, which is basically federated learning, but on an equal level. So all the participants, they are on the same page, they're on the same level, and they share a set of rules, but no one dominates the whole network. Because what happens during training is they all start training the machine learning model um, at the same time, and then they exchange the weights of their models with each other in a peer-to-peer way. And then every every time um, the models are merged, the model weights are merged, what happens is that someone from the someone from the swarm, someone from the group um, merges the model and then distributes the merged model. And this this role can change over time. So any participant can be removed from the network, from the consortium, and the process still works. And this is um, the premise, that's the idea behind swarm learning, to bring federated learning more to an equal level and not and, and make it less of a pyramid. And one technical detail that comes in here is the blockchain thing that these transactions of weights between the participants and the decisions who in which iteration merges the model um, that's somehow coordinated by a blockchain and also logged on that blockchain. And that's just a technical detail, which is, I think, pretty interesting um, because it's one of the few applications of blockchain technology in medicine that could be really useful, I think. So in our study, what we did was to use this technology in histopathology for the first time. So it was more of a practical study. Can we use that? Can we make our models in such a way that they are compatible with this? And can we solve the practical difficulties of running that? And really the three major takeaways to come to your question is that, yes, this technology is feasible. And what we also found is that the um, performance of the resulting models that we get in the end are um, on the same level as a centralized model. So that's good. We don't lose any performance by doing that, at least in our um, primary benchmark task. Um, The second takeaway is that we still need need a lot of hyperparameter tuning and playing around with that. So using the swarm learning platform gives you more knobs and um, settings than just the standard machine learning experiment. And the third takeaway for me is that the main challenges in this in in running this in the real world are still practical right so the practical limitations of 
having the right amount of data pre-processed with the right protocol ready at each site to have like the computer infrastructure running to have it embedded in the clinical IT infrastructure, but also enable network communication between the different sites. Well, these maybe maybe a little bit boring technical, like um, practical questions are really the main limitation here, and that's something that maybe becomes even more pronounced with the with the swarm learning technology as compared to the to the to the conventional workflow. Thank you. So you really summarized a very difficult big paper into a very short three-point summary, but that also, of course, opens up many questions. Before going to the second and third question I had, the first question I sort of had is this thing you talked about having this problem that originally generated from the design of what federated learning is this one central location, so sort of this hub which consolidates all the model information in one place and sending it back out. Whereas by design, Swarm is more distributed and you are combining blockchain with the traditional approaches of distributed learning to to solve this problem. Uh, So for our more technical-minded people, can you give us some understanding in terms of like uh, uh, how difficult the convergences are in such a setting, how difficult the training is, while you you mentioned already about the problems of hyperparameter search. So just can you give us some technical insights of the difficulties that you faced? Yes. So the main difficulties are to get your hyperparameters right. So which hyperparameters am I talking about? Well, mainly the synchronization intervals. So every how many iterations do we send the model to each other? Of course, it makes sense. It would make sense maybe after every iteration, so after every batch of images that's being fed to the neural network, the neural network learns something to then exchange the weights between the participants. But the exchanging of weights and the merging process, it takes a a few seconds. And so this slows down what you're doing quite a bit. And that's why we don't do this every iteration, but maybe only every fourth or every eighth or every 16th iteration. And that's something we played around with and we tried to find an optimum between the speed and efficiency and between the performance on the other hand. Then a big challenge is what do you do with data sets of unequal size? So um, we have three data sets um, at three locations. How do we deal with the fact that maybe one data set has only um, 200 patients and the other data sets, they have 1,000 patients. So if we set the same number of, um, of epochs, for each site, and then we exchange the weights after every couple of iterations, then the partner with the smallest data set will finish first. And then what happens if you keep on training the model with the two other partners, probably over time, the model will forget the contribution of the third partner. And that's not what you want, right? You want to model to represent as much diversity as possible. But also, it would be wasteful to stop at the point where the third partner exhausts their data because then the two other partners, they haven't had the chance to present their data multiple times to the model um, as would be needed for the model to learn from the data. And that's where we played around with different things. For example, you could augment the data from the third partner or you could add different weighting factors, different weights 
to account for the differences in sample size. And that's where previous studies of swarm learning and federated learning often assume that um, really you have equal data sets of equal size and then they don't run into this problem. Another problem is that ideally we would like to have um, swarm learning as a technology that enables dozens or hundreds of institutions to work together and to co-train machine learning models on their data. And then we also don't want to enforce that all the partners, they start the training process at the same time, but maybe um, some partners start and then some more data becomes available. Then the training continues with this data, then another partner joins, then a partner drops out. And during this whole time, we want to ensure that the model gets better and better and doesn't forget what it has seen in the beginning. And so once you start thinking about all of these options of all of the things that could happen, of all of the scenarios, then you realize it becomes really, really complicated um, really, really quickly. Yeah, you, you made a very good point. So I guess one, when you are talking about the situation, I was thinking of probably two more problems that are rather, like one is very central to pathology and the other is much more general. So the first central, I guess, is about the staining style that varies. And so I guess the question is, uh, does your current algorithm needs a normalized staining style or does it work on across many different styles? So that's the first question, but I guess it's, it's sort of easy to answer. The more difficult question to answer, I guess, is that it's typically all this federated learning and the extension like Swarm Learning is done in a very supervised setting, but we can always imagine hospitals who might want to participate by donating slides, but not want to take the time to do the annotation. So it's a sort of then semi-supervised setting. Does does your algorithm can handle like can your algorithm handle that? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that these implementations of um, swarm learning or federated learning work right now mostly is that yeah, essentially you need a engineer at each site who someone who who sets up the whole thing, who sets up Linux on a computer, who um ensures that the ports are open, who starts the process, who supervises the things. I mean, that's how these, um, how the prototype that we played around with works. Of course, there's the whole field of ML ops, where you um, really want to solve these practical things and ro roll out a machine learning model training to, yeah, in a, in, a, in a much more easier way in practice. And this is what is, of course, also needed here. And this is mostly an implementation and software engineering problem that we need to solve in the, in the future to enable institutions without extensive technical knowledge to participate in that, but at the same time to be confident that their data is secure and is not shared, shared with others. So yeah, that's basically the next step, I think, to ensure this, to make sure that we have implementations of these technologies ready that can be used in such a way. Um, with respect to your first question, how important is it to have different types of staining or are these do do these different types of staining or sample processing matter? Yes, they do. That's a big point. So even if you look at the pathology slides that you get from different hospitals, for you as a human, mostly they look very different. Some of them are pink, some of them are blue. And um, so there are big differences. And even in cases where at the first glance, these slides look similar. 
there's still a huge batch effect, so still huge variations introduced by the pre-processing of the samples, even by the surgeon who performed the, the surgery procedure. And so what we have learned in the last couple of years is that it's very important to train your models on multicentric data sets. So you should collect slides from different locations and then enable the models to see a lot of variability during training. And this will enable the models to generalize well after after training. And of course, this is something where swarm learning could be useful because it enables you to include more diversity in your data. And also we are talking about ethnic diversity, of course, because there's quite a big of variation. For example, we work um, a lot with gastric cancer and gastric cancer in Asia is very different than gastric cancer in Europe. And if we want to have generalizable models, we should train on both of these types. And these are just two extremes. I mean, there's many, many nuances in the, in the middle. And so, yes, batch effects are a big factor, but also diversity of the populations that you train on. And by using these centralized machine learning, workflows, we can address these issues, but we need to have really good implementations, really professional ML ops to handle the practical aspects. Yeah, I, I, I guess I kind of agree that from a proof of concept to actually doing such setups in a really distributed across hospitals is a real, real big challenge. But I guess one other big challenge that comes into mind is that at least, well, not so much in histopathology, but at least radiology, there are works that has shown that from just from the trained models, you can derive many, many information about the patient population. And that brings the security, the risk of security into the fore. Now, if we, well, histopathology, albeit the fact that from these images, you can't really derive uh, who the patient was simply because these this, this belong to two different scales uh, altogether. But still the questions arise that if you have a distributed setting where each hospital's model necessarily have encoded information of all the other hospitals by the design of the distributed thing, then does it make it somehow more vulnerable because attack to the weakest of those in terms of the technical security can actually bring down that entire framework. Yes, absolutely. Um, you can, I mean, yes, it is possible to reconstruct properties of the input data from the model weights. And this is a problem in swarm learning, which is not solved by swarm learning per se. It's also, it might be even more of a problem in swarm learning, as you said, than in federated learning, because you share your model weights with more different parties. So, of course, as you said, unlike in radiology, in histopathology, we cannot usually reconstruct the identity of a patient just by looking at the pathology slides. But still, what we are working with right now is not just the pathology slides, but also associated metadata, so um, additional genetic data. And ideally, we also want to have multimodal models which can take histopathology images plus additional data. So really, for deploying this in the real world, we need to make sure that no input data can be reconstructed from the weights. There's different ways to do this. The most common methods are um, in the field of differential privacy, right, where you, in a very simple case, you can just add some degree of noise to your weights before you share it so that it makes the reconstruction harder. 
but then at some point you also lose some information so there's a balance here another technology that i think is pretty cool is homomorphic encryption where you can basically encrypt your model weights send them to someone else they merge the models in the encrypted space send it back to you and then only you are able to decrypt it so we've been playing around with that and this works also pretty pretty well there's even some implementations of that a few implementations of that available and i think ideally we need something like really differential privacy or homomorphic encryption before we use this in the real world so there's a lot of research to be done here before we can just use this in practice but these are all things that can be can be solved thank you that's really uh, i guess an exciting field of research where you immediate like you solve one problem and then you immediately realize that there are many more problems that opened up but that's also the excitement of it so i guess i was wondering because from your uh, this table of data set it immediately looks cool that you have data set from across not only different institutions but different countries so you also have data sets from uk from germany i forgot probably also some some open access data sets so i was wondering that how really the behind the scene the regulations and uh, staffs worked how how difficult it was to get the irb approval for oh that's not if you have many different countries this thing doesn't become more difficult because we have our standard procedure with the legal department of our university that negotiates with the other side a contract and that's mostly about because the the hospitals and the universities are concerned about what happens to the ip that you generate with the studies um but in general these data transfer agreements we make between the institutions they are the same more or less if we do it with an institution in the netherlands so within the eu or um even within germany or with the uk or us so that's typically not a problem for us however it usually takes a couple of months until you get all this paperwork in place and if you want to use your data for commercial purposes of course it becomes much more complicated because what we are is an academic research group so we are not creating products for medical use what we do is we run proof of concept studies we want to show this is possible and then we or others can later build products um based on that based on these insights i mean that's that's where why we use our taxpayer money to to do this research and to come up with research results and then in the end if you want to commercialize that of course the legal requirements usually become much much harder and it becomes yeah much much harder to negotiate the use of um the data with the um institutions yeah that makes total sense right that it's uh, as long as it's not for profit it's for publications for generation of knowledge that should be a different standard altogether than when you are trying to make money out of it makes total sense but i'm glad to actually hear that even for such a multi country uh, setting such collaborations for distributed learning can actually work that's i guess a, a big news for all of us who are developing algorithms and trying to bring uh, diverse data into our algorithms so 
Yeah, that's really a wonderful summary of the paper. It was published in Nature Medicine and all of you who are listening to and interested in checking the paper out, the link of the paper will be provided in the description of the uh, podcast. So you can check that out. And we are towards the end of our uh, session. And we have this one traditional question that we always ask, and I will ask the same to you, Jacob, as well. So imagine a sort of euphoric situation for the next five years where you have unlimited resources. You don't have to worry of PhD students graduating or writing the next proposal or whatever your clinical routine is bothering you about opening up of your Word document and typing things. <laughs> but just you can focus completely on research project. And there would be just one question that you can focus upon. What would that question be? Maybe two questions, sorry. Um, one, one question is how can we use multimodal data? Because that is really a challenge. I think most of the studies that have been published recently use pretty cool technologies, but still most of them just focus on a single type of data. So CT images, histopathology, or lab work. And it's really hard to find a study that has combined multiple of these. And this is mostly due to practical limitations because it's even harder to get CT images and matched pathology slides from different institutions for many patients. But also this is something that somehow yeah, has been, may have been missing from the literature for, for other reasons. And I think it makes total sense to compare and to combine different types of data because that's what we do in clinical routine every day that we, we never just look at a, a CT scan or at a pathology slide and make a decision. You always consider at least the age and the sex and the previous um, diseases, previous medical history of that patient. So what I think we should do is build models that can integrate different types of data. I mean, IBM Watson has shown that it's maybe you shouldn't take two big steps towards this multimodality, um, but I think we can be a little bit more bold in, in combining different types of data. And this is what we are working the, what we are working on. Also, the other thing is that I'm just fascinated by the progress of AI in non-medical fields, for example, with transformers and generative models, and also multimodal models. And what we are doing, we are doing applied AI research in medicine. So we will not come up with the next um um, universal generative model that works in all of the domains. But what we can do is we can identify promising technologies and try to find useful applications for them in, in healthcare. And this is why I'm really so excited about the next um, five years because of all of the progress that has been going on in non-medical fields. We are really, we really have a long backlog of trying to um, apply these things to clinically relevant questions. And so that's what we are doing. And if I can mention this here, we are also um, looking for people who, who uh, want to work on this with, together with us. So we are looking for postdocs, software engineers who want to pursue this vision together with us. There's lots of funding available too, um, but the biggest challenge is to find the right people to do this, to, to have an, and develop an understanding of the medical side and the technical side. And that's what the niche of our team will be in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's really a wonderful 
way to end the podcast because you have this vision of combining multimodal data with the advances of uh, deep learning uh, in computer vision. Well, Dresden is a very nice city. I have never been to Dresden, unfortunately, uh, but I, I have seen pictures of how beautiful it looks like. So those of you who are interested in moving to Dresden and work in a very, very productive and thoughtful research lab, which will do wonderful research in the next five years, I'm sure then absolutely write down to Jacob and maybe there are some very nice projects opening up for you guys. On that note, thank you so much, Jacob. It was really, really nice talking to you and learn about the Nature Medicine paper. I'm really looking forward to see more awesome works from your group. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you and hope to see you soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Have fun. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.